The first of my posts to the Facebook group was a focus summary of the second night. The next night, the two met as planned, she declaring that this time they must conduct themselves differently. She had realized, she said, that she knew nothing about him, and asked that he tell her his history. Our narrator responded that he has no history, because he is utterly, entirely alone, never talking to anyone. His companion then suggests that perhaps he, like she, has been held captive by an overbearing grandmother. When, as a child, she played some harmless pranks, her blind grandmother resolved to control her by pinning her to her dress, and so she had sat, sewing and reading, for the last two years. Our narrator replied that he has no such grandmother, that he sits at home, alone, because he is a dreamer. Then, about to begin his story, he interrupted himself to first ask her name. Nastenka, she said. He told Nastenka that in little nooks and corners around Petersburg, there are dreamers, whose lives are, quote, a mixture of something purely fantastic, fervently ideal, with something dingily prosaic and ordinary, not to say incredibly vulgar, unquote. He then painted a vivid picture of the life of a dreamer, drawing her, and in doing so drawing us, into his life with a vivid account of how he experiences it. As he hides away in his invariably grimy, dismal corner, the dreamer might occasionally receive a visit from some new acquaintance, whom he meets with embarrassment and confusion, as if he had just committed some crime. The ordinarily affable visitor finds himself uncomfortable and tongue-tied, looking in the downcast face of his host. After the host makes a failed effort to enliven the conversation, the visitor inevitably offers some excuse about business that never existed, and hurries away, never to return. Nastenka then interrupted to accuse him of telling his story as if he were reading from a book, and he replied that he could not control himself. Meeting her, he felt as if a thousand valves had opened in his head, and he was compelled to let flow a river of words. He went on to explain why the dreamer would be so startled by the presence of a guest, what it is that he does in his corner. Every night, when his work day is over, and everyone is hurrying home to have dinner and to rest, the dreamer is overcome by a strange pleasure, by a joyful emotion, by a swarm of impressions called forth from his warm heart. He begins imagining for himself a marvelous, magical life, capriciously weaving all the sights before him into his canvas like a spider's web. Only later, after he has returned home and dined and been given his pipe, does he awaken from his reverie, surprised to see that he has eaten and unable to recall his kingdom of fancies. Soon after, Vague sensations again set his heart aching, and again a new world, a new fascinating life opens vistas before him. He sees ordinary life as slow and insipid, and ordinary men as dissatisfied by their fates and exhausted by their lives, 
while he lives an endless swarm of ecstatic dreams. He knows that one day he might desire to trade his fairyland for real life, even for a moment. But until that moment, he feels superior to all desire, because he experiences his fantastic world as concrete, real, substantial. His pulse quickens, a tear falls, his cheeks glow, all as if it were real, and he goes to bed with a weary sweet ache in his heart. He experiences love with all its fathomless joy, all its torturing agonies, feeling as if he truly spent years with his conjured lover, hand in hand, walked along solitary, moss-grown paths, grieved their painful separation under a tempestuous sky, and reunited, quote, far from their native shores, under alien skies, to the crash of music, unquote. Having conveyed this picture of the inner life of the dreamer, he then asked Nestenka, if this blissful reverie were abruptly interrupted by an uninvited visitor, does it not make sense that he would blush like a guilty schoolboy? Regretting that he had shared so much, he feared that Nastenka would break into her childish, irrepressible laugh. But instead, she pressed his hand with timid sympathy and asked, Surely you haven't lived like that all your life? He answered that so he has lived all his life, and so he must go on to the end. But she replied uneasily that that must not be. His dreams, her life pinned to her grandmother— they won't do. He then reassured her that whatever loneliness his future might bring, for two evenings at least, at her side, he has lived. He told her that she has reconciled him to himself. He had long regarded his life of imagination as a crime and a sin, because it causes him to lose all instinct for the actual and real because it is vulnerable to transfiguration into depression with the first clouds that shroud the Petersburg sun, because you hear the roar of the crowd in the vortex of life around you and know that their life does not float away like a dream. He had been driven to desperately fanning the flames of his old desires, trying to rekindle them, reduced to celebrating the anniversaries of his own sensations, left to face that he buried his best days and will be left alone with nothing, not having lived, because there has been nothing but dreams. At his reflections, a tear trickled down Nastinka's cheek, and she declared that she truly understands him and vowed that they will never part. Then she asked if he would give her advice and began her own story. The next of my posts was some preliminary thoughts on why I love this story. Speaking the other day to one of my most loyal Read With Me members, who happens also to be my mother, her first remark about White Knights was, wow, we are not in Sinclair Lewis's world anymore. She was struck by that which, to my understanding, is Dostoevsky's unique and astonishing literary contribution— he plumbs the very depths of the human psyche, exposing and exploring thoughts and feelings 
from the deepest recesses of our minds. Popular intellectual and YouTube star Jordan Peterson urges everyone to read Dostoevsky. In a video of a lecture to his students that has now been watched by hundreds of thousands of fans, Peterson says, I would highly recommend that you read all five of his great novels, because they are unparalleled in their psychological depth. Writer Stefan Zweig said of him, Dostoevsky was the first to reveal to us this teeming multiplicity of emotions, this complexity of our spiritual universe. And an author I dearly love once wrote, Dostoevsky shows us our own faults in vulgar detail and without an averted eye. He confronts the ugliness of human nature with an underlying love for mankind and their seemingly never-ending plight. That last author is my 17-year-old daughter, Greta, who claims Dostoevsky as her favorite writer of all. It would not be a great stretch to say that Dostoevsky's depiction of the dreamer is highly autobiographical. Dostoevsky was, himself, a dreamer. According to biographer E. H. Carr, as a child, Dostoevsky spent his days reading and studying or taking solemn walks with his father in discussion of improving subjects. Rarely did he play, and never did he have playmates. Dostoevsky felt himself, Carr says, incapable of ordinary social discourse. An eyewitness account tells us that as a student at the military academy in Petersburg, Dostoevsky could be found, quote, sitting in the corner of a dark and airless dormitory, reading or writing by the light of a tallow candle, unquote. Carr says that as an adult, Dostoevsky found, to his regret, that, quote, he had become incapable of expanding to the normal measure of human intercourse and giving himself to the external world. He shrank back into the morbid self-absorption of his garret existence, unquote. Perhaps this strikes you as morbid and tragic. It does me. But though the life he knew and mostly writes about is one of solitude and sadness, we all benefit from the hours he spent examining his own mind. Carr puts it beautifully. Quote, no great master is so poor in incidental characters. Thumbnail sketches of external characteristics is not his métier. He cannot skim the surface. Each of Dostoevsky's characters is conceived with the intensity of one who has spent a lifetime and a lifetime of isolation in the contemplation of their souls. The amazing profundity of his observation more than compensates for the narrowness of his field of vision." Unquote. That profundity, that drive to leave no psychological stone unturned, is prominent even in this sweet and charming love story. The next of my posts was called, Why Dream? One question I asked myself as I read Our Dreamer's History is, what is it about him that has prompted him to live this life of dreams? First, our dreamer dreams because he is an idealist, discontented with the prosaic pleasures in which ordinary men find meaning. He has a longing for grandeur, adventure, 
and rapture. He cannot, like his visitor, some festive soul fond of a joke, find satisfaction in, quote, laughter, lively words, conversation about the fair sex, and other cheerful subjects, unquote. He cannot be like his fellow men, who, quote, hurry home to dinner, to lie down, to rest, cogitating on other more cheerful subjects relating to their evenings, their nights, and all the rest of their free time, unquote. The cheerful and festive, which I take to mean the light, the trivial, the frivolous, are alien to his soul. He has a similar resentment for our serious, over-serious time, in which men live, quote, torpidly, slowly, insipidly, dissatisfied with their fate, exhausted by their life, unquote. Reality is the mundane matrona, always thoughtful and depressed, making coffee in the kitchen and sweeping cobwebs from the rafters. Reality is, quote, four walls which are invariably painted green, grimy, dismal, and reeking unpardonably of tobacco smoke, unquote. In his dreams, he lives a life superior to this torpid, gloomy reality. The contrast between his life of dreams and the prosaicness of reality is nowhere better captured than in the moment of his interrupted romantic reverie. As he envisions his beloved, having escaped a loveless marriage to the Count, quote, drowned in a sea of lights, on the balcony, wreathed in myrtle and roses, unquote, and imagines that, quote, recognizing him, she hurriedly removes her mask, and whispering, I am free, flings herself trembling into his arms, unquote. An uninvited visitor opens the door and shouts, My dear boy, I have this minute come from Pavlovsk. The dreamer's response is a perfect poetic summation of contempt for the trifling and insipid. Quote, My goodness, the old count is dead. Unutterable happiness is close at hand. And people arrive from Pavlovsk. Unquote. This idealistic longing has made him a misfit, has set him at odds with ordinary men. We see his self-doubting awkwardness in the embarrassment with which he faces his uninvited guest, in his awkward and fruitless efforts to make conversation, and in the image of him as an unhappy kitten, roughly handled, frightened, and subjected to indignities until he hides away crestfallen under a chair. He yearns so profoundly for something his fellow men do not understand and this leaves him isolated, disdained, friendless, and terribly lonely. In other words, he dreams because he seeks the sublime, and he can't find it in reality. The last of my posts was called, Why Not Dream? Our narrator says that the life of a dreamer is a mixture of something purely fantastic, fervently ideal, with something, alas, dingily prosaic and ordinary, not to say incredibly vulgar. What is prosaic and vulgar about a life of dreams? Why does he call such a life a crime and a sin? 
In his dreams, the fervent idealist can fulfill his grandest and most romantic ambitions. As he is carried away on the current of his imagination, he is at once, quote, rich with his own individual life. And it is not for nothing that the fading sunset sheds its farewell gleams so gaily before him, and calls forth a swarm of impressions from his warmed heart, unquote. The dreamer has no need of reality, quote, for one deceives oneself and unconsciously believes that real, true passion is stirring in one's soul, unquote. And by some sorcery, his pulses quickened, a tear starts, his pale, moist cheeks glow, and, quote, his whole being is suffused with an inexpressible sense of consolation, unquote. But our dreamer also reveals to us why at times he is overcome with misery, grieving his life and thinking ill of himself. I was captivated by this passage and of his account of the emptiness of a life of dreams. He says that when his fantastic nights, as they always do, float away like visions, he continually suffers the pain of returning sobriety. He finds, over time, that he has difficulty conjuring his old dreams, that his fancy becomes worn out with continual exercise, and that in their absence they leave the heart overcast with depression. The dreamer is then left to rake over his old impressions, trying desperately to fan them into flame, but feeling they have all been outgrown. Then he is driven to celebrating the anniversary of his own sensations. What a phrase. Because he has no life experience that would inspire new dreams, and even dreams do not come for nothing. He begins then to experience black thoughts and a gloomy, gnawing conscience that gives him no rest. And so the years fly by, and he discovers that he has buried his best days and is left alone, utterly alone, with nothing even to regret. He tells Nastenka that she has reconciled him to himself. Perhaps how she has done so was suggested earlier in their conversation, when he says that he often thinks, quote, that this is a poor, pitiful life, not foreseeing that for him too, maybe, sometime the mournful hour may strike, when for one day of that pitiful life he would give all his years of fantasy, and would give them not only for joy and for happiness, but without caring to make distinctions in that hour of sadness, remorse, and unchecked grief. Unquote. And again, when he tells her, quote, Now that I sit beside you and talk to you, it is strange for me to think of the future, for in the future there is loneliness again, again this musty, useless life. And what shall I have to dream of? when I have been so happy in reality beside you. Oh, may you be blessed, dear girl, for not having repulsed me at first, for enabling me to say that for two evenings, at least, I have lived." Unquote. One of the questions this all leaves us with, and one that I think we should endeavor to answer, is, 
does Dostoevsky think he has been wrong to dream? <laughs>